Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. The pandemic has changed the way a lot of people do things, and many areas of our lives may not go back to the way that they used to. What extra stress has this put on the addiction community? Prior to the pandemic, everyone was very concerned about the use of opioids and opioid addiction, and that hasn't gone away. Well, today I'm joined by Dr. William Hanning. He is the president-elect of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry, and the program director of Addiction Psychiatry and Addiction Medicine at John A. Burns School of Medicine. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Kathy. Now, you know, before the pandemic, in the last couple of years, there was a lot of talk about recognizing the overuse of opioids for different medical conditions, potential addiction to those medications. And there was a lot of information. You really couldn't turn on the news or read a magazine article without having some reference to what was going on with the opioid epidemic. And as coronavirus started sometime in January, February, and the COVID-19 pandemic took over, we don't hear so much about it anymore, but I don't think it went away. What's no. <laughs> been going on in the opioid, com- opioid use community, and has, that, has the pandemic changed how you approach addiction medicine these days? First, a word about epidemics, endemics, and pandemics. Um, we've had an opioid endemic, and, and, and this, you know, people listening to me may say, oh, great, he's going to get into teaching us a vocabulary, but... We've had sort of a resting fire of opioid use in this country for going on a couple centuries. And whether you choose to call that an epidemic or an endemic really relates to just how immediately explosive the problem is. Um, The folks have been doing a variety of opioids since well before the Civil War here, and uh, unfortunately, with pretty much the same consequences, which is an increasing habituation to use and diminution of function. The, the deaths from opioid misuse in the course of the past 10 or so years has in large part reflected the availability of extraordinarily high-potency opioids, um, read heroin or fentanyl or, any of the, or oxycodone or hydrocodone, even methadone, being used by folks who don't have much familiarity with the drug or who have stopped using for a time, watched their tolerance bottom out, and then started using at the old dose again, which unfortunately is a formula for, for, for death. It's been there in resting levels up and down. In fact, in 2018, the death toll for this country for opioid diversion was about 56,000. Um, compare that to the approximately 100,000 COVID-19 deaths that have occurred in the course of the past going on six months or so. They're in the same order of magnitude, but what we will see, of course, we hope, is a decrease in the, in the COVID uh, effects uh, as, people, as the benefits of all of these efforts that we're making bear out. But I promise you the opioid use disorder is still going to be there, carrying on decade after decade, uh, (laughs) valiantly taking people under. And we've got good medications and good treatments for dealing with that. 
What are some of those treatments? I know that there's a variety of different thoughts. Some people feel like you should just stop completely. Then there's also the idea of medication-assisted treatment. What are the differences? How do we currently treat opioid disorders in the United States? What are the options? The person who has the illness is the one whom we are treating. And as a consequence, there's enormous variance between the individuals and of their needs. That sounded awfully pedantic, but I think you know where I'm getting to, which sure. is that one size doesn't there's, there's fit no all. one medication fits all, and there's no one approach fits all. We've found some work better than others for the general population, but that's a little like saying for most pneumonias, penicillin works, and then there's a huge number of them that <laughs> for which it doesn't work. So the medications we've got available really fall into two classes for the opioids. One is uh, agonist medication, which seeks to even out the highs and lows by pressing the same buttons that the, uh, that the hydrocodone, oxycodone, morphine, and the rest do, but without the same degree of impairment. And then there are the antagonists, like naltrexone, which can either be given as naltrexone as an injection or as a tablet to try and keep all the little buttons in your brain that are responsive to opioids occupied, uh, or the uh, fast-acting version of that, which is naloxone, that we use to reverse an overdose. Uh, There are other available medications that manage incidental symptoms, but, you know, that's, that's... this isn't the colloquium on what the medications are. But That's medication options to a person one. practicing psychopharmacology, but to the people who are doing interpersonal therapy, all of the folks who are in recovery themselves who are going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings, or all of the social workers, psychologists, uh, nurse practitioners, and the rest who have skills in counseling are attempting to do, is to bring somebody up to a higher level of maturity after years of use of the drug. So really, like you said, one size doesn't fit all. Some yeah. people may fit into the medication-assisted treatment with agonists. Some people may need antagonists. Some people may do well with doing some of the other psychotherapy. And some people need a combination maybe of all of that. Great so summary. that's been what we've done up until now. Now, let's, you know, it's curious because I had this patient who saw me a couple of weeks ago, and she has been sober for the last 16 years and had a little blurp that she experienced maybe uh, about 16 years ago after 10 years of sobriety, and she was in another country. So one of the things that she has found is that she's always kept up with AA meetings, and she's now found this incredible way to join AA meetings internationally. So in her case, addiction was alcohol. It wasn't opioids. But she's found that this pandemic has resulted in her reaching out in different ways to locations Her first place was Amsterdam. She said, that's where I fell off of my sobriety, and that's where I want to go to a meeting. And she was able to do that through Zoom, through some of these other, you know, video portals that have allowed her to try something different, try a new approach. And she's been absolutely enjoying it immensely. I mean, this woman is in her 70s, and she's teaching me about technology and international dialing on Zoom. I had no idea. What are some of the treatment communities or some of the support communities doing since there was this idea of don't gather 
six feet of social distance, make sure that everyone's wearing a mask, and no more than 10 people. How has the addiction community responded to some of those challenges, and is it working? So when I get asked what addiction is, and I get asked a lot, depending on who the audience is, I will almost always insert the statement that it is a disorder or a disease of connections or relationships. It's a solvent for relationships. And a large part of the recovery process, whether or not it involves medications, requires engagement with other people who are in the process of recovering or who have some investment in your, in your being recovered. That said, as you can imagine, once suddenly the big meetings were out of the question, there were a lot of folks who were ready to fall on their swords uh, because AA and NA and actually a great many other groups now, there are a variety of approaches to community-based recovery that that are not limited to AA and NA. But we use those as examples for a moment. Commonly, you know, anywhere between 10 and 50 people in a church basement drinking awful, awful coffee and, and no longer smoking cigarettes in the meeting and trying on some level to establish a connection between each other on how best to stay recovered. And now they can't do that. Along comes, uh, as you say, Zoom and WebEx and all the other platforms. But they also have their intrinsic defects, which are it's not the basement anymore. You can't actually see the person. You see a small image of the person. And so the nature of the connection has changed slightly. Not so much that this isn't useful, but again, it may not be a one-size-fits-all. If you happen to be fearful and you don't trust the technology, then you may see yourself or may feel yourself being cut off. In World War II, Alcoholics Anonymous started publishing a little magazine called The Grapevine. It called itself the meeting in print. That was the closest thing. That was the highest form of technologic advance at the time for overcoming the enormous spans of distance that occurred between the alcoholic, uh, the alcoholic soldier and, uh, and his meeting. Um, we're pretty much further along than that, but it's, it's still not com- it's, it's not the end-all and the be-all yet. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Dr. William Henning. Uh, He is currently the Program Director of Addiction Psychiatry and Addiction Medicine at John Burns School of Medicine. And we're going to talk some more about what are some of the ways that the community has really helped to support those who are struggling with recovering from addiction in a variety of different mechanisms and what we can all do if we see somebody who's struggling with some of these issues that may actually have gotten worse due to the isolation of having to stay home all the time. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. William Henning on the line. He is the president-elect of the American Society of Addiction Medicine and a local expert in the field of addiction psychiatry. And right before the break, we were talking about how, you know, years ago, the only way to connect people who otherwise were geographically isolated may have been in print. And now we're looking at using other sorts of telephonic communications, but it may not provide the same level of connection or relationship that some of the in-person meetings have done. You know, 
Dr. Hanning, I think about what we've done in, you know, my medical office, and we've sort of found a way to do some, like you said, one size doesn't fit all. Some visits are on video, some are on telephone, some are in the office. We're letting patients designate exactly what they feel would be best for them. And we're giving them some guidance about what we can handle in different mechanisms or different ways of care. So we're trying to provide more options than we ever have before. And in some cases, I think it's going to wind up being one visit they want to do in person and maybe the next time on the phone and maybe another time using video, a com- kind of a hodgepodge of all different types of technology. Is that similar to what might happen with some of our AA and NA communities where they may have some in-person meetings, some Zoom or WebEx or some type of telemedicine platform meeting and or a combination of all of them? Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, thanks for that very (laughs) illustrative answer. But I wonder, is there pluses and minuses of each? We've got all kinds of options that are available to us now that didn't exist before. I'll even plug from my good friend Eddie Mercero's um, podcast project that was stood up a few months back. Um, Hawaii Cares, familiar to you? The yes. uh, coordinated access resource entry system. It, it's, it operates out of the Myron Thompson School of Social Work, but it's actually a, an agency of or the product of, the, of our very own Department of Health, which is a, a uh, what's the term that I'm using here, a kind of brokerage for people who need substance use disorder treatment or who are even just asking that question. I mean, m- most of my dealings are with people who are just trying to get around to asking the question, which is, do I have something here that needs treatment and is there something you can offer me? And CARES is one example of a professional response, kind of like going to see your doctor, that will lead you along different routes that hopefully will answer your questions about your own substance use. What would be some of those questions? I mean, I know that a lot of folks, particularly those who are told, you know, shelter in place, stay at home, you might hit a certain age criteria or have certain medical conditions that make you immunocompromised. And we've been telling everybody to stay home, work from home, or just stay indoors. And now we're starting to open up a little bit. But for those folks who were sort of told, you know, go home and stay there, would that extra stress potentially have led to relapses with some of their, some of their, issues, whether it be alcohol or some other type of substance, and are we prepared to handle potentially an influx of people who have been, unfortunately, isolated enough that it's resulted in relapses? The standard joke in Alcoholics Anonymous and in other similar support groups is um, that I drank for all these reasons, and then I drank for the reverse of those reasons. The People who are in recovery are accustomed to the fact that they are, uh, they are, they're subject to stressors, and that can't be viewed as the as the basis for their using or drinking. Um, it's it, it's important to understand what those stressors are, and to be able to identify them, to list them, and to have a recovery plan that accounts for them. If I discover after a certain period of time that I like drinking in direct consequence of my smoking tobacco, it may be about time for me to give up the tobacco. Similarly, if I find myself in certain situations that predilect me towards drinking or using, after a while, I hopefully learn not to do that. The sort of stressors that you're talking about that are confining people to households, that are minimizing the degree of contact that they can have with others, 
is the basis for getting on the telephone and calling your sponsor or getting in connection with your family members and the rest. We live in a real world that's full of risk. Nobody's been able to get completely risk-free with respect to the COVID virus, and uh, uh, no, no amount of isolation is going to completely uh, assuage the concern that there may be a virus out there waiting for me. Fine. <laughs> we do what we can. That's very true. I mean, I think we've been very lucky here in the islands that we haven't had a huge number of cases. We're very low on the list of the number of cases in the states throughout the United States. And I think that we are going to be opening up a little bit. We're going to start seeing inter-island travel with no more quarantine. Potentially, we will see more visitors coming in. And there is, in some cases, a sense of fear of potential exposure. And that may add stress to a lot of people and their response to that stress, whether it be from the coronavirus or or financial stress or whatever it might be, you're right. That could that could force somebody to have a stress response. And if that response is they're going to start drinking, or that response might be some other type of activity that they do, you know, there's it's planning in advance. So when you talk with some of the folks that you have been helping over the years, what sort of what sort of planning does someone need to do? You know, I kind of think about, I mean, chocolate, right? So if I absolutely feel like I must have chocolate and I open up my cabinet and I have gone wild and bought a lot of my favorite chocolate, it's the availability. So, of course, that's what I'm going to reach for. But if I have not bought it or if I open up my refrigerator and there's prepackaged vegetables, I'm more likely to choose something quick and easy. And if it's already cut up for me, I'll choose that versus having to go to a store to go get something. So for me, that preparing in advance, knowing I know I'm going to want some chocolate, I really should have carrots and celery. I need to make sure there's carrots and celery around to hopefully help me make that better choice. Is there anything that somebody who has a substance abuse problem or an addiction problem, can they do that preparation in advance? Is it just if I go to a party, I know I can't go with so-and-so? Or are there certain things they could do even in their own home to help set themselves up for success? Oh, if I were to have diabetes, notice I didn't say if I were a diabetic. We're going to get away from that language, I hope. If I had diabetes and I came to see you, you are not likely to give me a bottle of, uh, of, humula and of human insulin and, and a supply of syringes and alcohol and say, here's how you do this, take this, use these test strips, go home, and you got it covered. <laughs> I go, what? I don't come back to see you? Oh, no, no, you, 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 you heard me. You're bright. You, you got it. <laughs> This is not what you're going to do, at least not if you want to be. Um, not if you want to help somebody get better. You're <laughs> help absolutely out at right. All. Yeah. And, by the, and yet the paradox is that for the longest time we have treated people with addiction with exactly that model. We're going to send you through a treatment facility and you're going to come out. And then from then on, it's the community's issue. You're going to go to these mutual aid associations, the AA and NA, and somehow or another you're going to get well. And if you don't, if you relapse, well, we're going to get forgive the vulgarity, we're going to get pissed off at you for getting sick. <laughs> and, and, and it doesn't make any sense. We've been trying to grow the number of professionals in the state using a, a, a variety of grants, but working primarily through the medical school uh, and, and the various residency programs to increase the number of expert providers in addictions and who would provide the kind of guidance that you would want somebody with a substance use disorder to have who is mimicking the behavior of somebody with diabetes. 
by the way, the whole term of being an expert, I'm, I'm pleased that you call me an expert, and yet I keep falling back on the notion that X is the symbol for an unknown quantity and spurt is a drip under pressure. Um, that's a, a little where I'm standing right now. What I really am is somebody who is seven decades old for whom this is not the first rodeo, either in terms of disasters or wars or epidemics. And I'm trying to make sense out of the experience, as are most of you and my other colleagues, in a way that will reduce the overall impact on Hawaii's population. All right. Well, with that being said, we still have some more time to talk. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Dr. William Hanning, who's on the line. And when we come back, we are going to talk some more about the future of how we can increase the number of expert providers and what are the potential ways that treatment of addictions of any kind could change in the near and far future. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. William Hanning on the line. He is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and the current program director of addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine at John A. Burns School of Medicine. He's also the president-elect of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Right before the break, we were talking about what are some of the ways to set someone up for success and what are the needs in our community. Now, Dr. Hanning, you mentioned that you're working with the medical school to try and increase the number of expert providers that are out there. What sort of things might someone look for? What type of educational background or what expertise should someone look for if they need to be treated for an addiction and if they need some professional medical help? What are these credentials that they may be needing to assess? We've been pretty good here about staying ahead of the training game. Retaining the physicians has been a little more difficult for the same reason that it's difficult to retain a lot of folks in Hawaii relating to salaries and education and the rest. But let's just go with your question, which is uh, we set up the first addiction psychiatry and then addiction medicine fellowship training programs west of the Mississippi here back in 1998. And since that time, we've generated a lot of very competent folks who have completed psychiatric residencies, that is, they are board-certified psychiatrists or are, as you, a primary care physician in another specialty such as internal medicine, family practice, OBGYN, any of those, and go through an additional year of training. And they spend one year learning what the, not just the tricks of the trade are, that's a little bit too flippant, frankly, what the basic science is behind all of this, the psychopharmacology and the actual interpersonal uh, therapy skills that are required to help somebody navigate their own recovery. Right now, I am blessed with two wonderful new uh, faculty members in addition to the existing ones we've had before. And Dr. Miki Kiyokawa is an internist who comes from Department of Medicine at the medical school and has uh, spent, a, spent a year with us, as well as uh, Jerry Bush, whose faculty member just came over from Texas and is board certified in a variety of different specialties, including addiction medicine, addiction psychiatry. What we try to do is get out to the rest of the treatment community, aiming for all of the physicians that are likely to be encountering this treatment challenge. And from there, we're going to work our way on down through, if I'm 
successful at this. <laughs> um, all of the folks who are in medical school, which we're already working on, and then uh, people who are studying in other fields, social work, psychology, and the rest, and then let them take the message out elsewhere. The training that's involved uh, for a physician is pretty demanding, but that also means that they're well-skilled once they've completed it. Uh, let me stop. I'm, I'm meandering too much. <laughs> Not at all. It's, it's curious to me because it makes me think that, you know, even for those providers who are currently in practice who say, I want to try a different approach, I want to learn something new, if they're in some of the fields that you mentioned, they could potentially consider doing this fellowship yep. that would help them to understand a whole new dimension of medicine and in doing so potentially be able to reach a different patient population. Now, there's challenges. We need to have physicians in pretty much every specialty on all islands that will hopefully help to take care of the next, the, the current residents, but also the next generation as well. You know, and it gets me to wondering, where do you think there's been such a transformation in the educational process within the last two months? I mean, the DOE, the Department of Education, has started doing classes online. A lot of universities have had to flip to that. Immediately, private schools have also been doing, you know, Zoom classes and other types of ways to educate folks. Do you think that the training for addiction medicine is going to have a different approach. Instead of doing an on-site, in-person fellowship, could it incorporate some of these technological advances that could allow people to do a fellowship and not even necessarily have to physically leave where they're living? Could your fellowship go even broader than having people come right here to the islands? It absolutely could, and that's actually what we're starting to arrange in a collaboration with other fellowships even now. Um, and and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, it's not like these folks I'm training or we're training with MDs and DOs, these doctoral candidates, are providing all the care or even necessarily the essential care. There's a whole cadre of folks out there who have dedicated themselves to trying to help people with addictions get well. And they are psychologists, licensed social workers, and principally CSACs certified substance abuse counselors who are credentialed through the Department of Health of the state of Hawaii. Uh, the CSACs are, uh, they start off as laypersons. They end up taking a certain amount of training, usually through the community colleges, and then a great deal of what they accomplish is predicated, one, on on-the-job training, and number two, usually on the experience of recovery themselves or recovery of people and their families. They're doing the moment-to-moment -moment interchange that maintains the connection that helps the person with the addiction get well. So this is not just about training doctors. This is about training doctors to train other doctors, social workers, psychologists, medical students, and CSACs on down the line. That whole team approach, I think that in medicine, we've started to see the idea of incorporating nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and also, you know, different members of the team, clinical pharmacologists, behaviorists, getting this whole group to take care of patients in such a way that, you know, everybody can work to the highest level of their, their abilities and expertise, but they can work collaboratively together. So I think it certainly sounds like that's the model that you're describing with all these different players that can all play a role and take care of some of the folks who need it the most. I think one of the bigger things that we can offer is interruption.
eruption of nihilism. Now, most of my friends would tell you that that's a pretty predictable string of words to issue from my mouth, and I apologize. But it's the it's the it's the it's the negative expectations that do us in here. Uh, the the belief that somehow or another somebody with an addiction or with alcoholism really is not that likely to get well. Close on 40% of the patients on our consultation liaison service over at Queens have some sort of substance use disorder or some some sort of, I'll leave it at that, it's some sort of substance use disorder. It may not be uh, horrendously impairing, but it is affecting what their level of care is. And if you simply say, well, I'll attend to that the same way I would to any other coexisting problem that they've got, like a bad hip or, uh, or, or a pneumonia, then uh, we need several hundred addictionists here in the state, and it wouldn't be a practical provision. Well, on that note, I think we need to be practical. We need to get that team approach going. And I want to thank you for joining me today on The Body Show, sharing your expertise and inspiring us to take a look at addiction with a whole new mindset and hopefully help to train the next generation of folks who will take part in the recovery process. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. See you next week right here on The Body Show. Thank mm-hmm. you.